What kind of people follow Jesus? It's an appropriate title for a message which has to do with Jesus calling disciples to himself. What kind of people follow Jesus? It's a good question. I think a very timely question. What kind of people follow Jesus? The text answers the question. But you know something? So do you. I was reflecting this week on how many of you I've talked to and whose testimonies I've heard that speak loudly and clearly about the call of Jesus in your life. And some of you have had a difficult time. You've You've had, uh, you've had to deal with some devastating blows in your lives. For others, their life has been rather inconsequential in terms of anything traumatic. But in either case, in both cases, people have decided to follow Jesus. Some have had to face death and divorce and depression, and God has used them all to get your attention. I remember a lady by the name of Debbie. She was in one of our churches and her testimony still sticks in my mind because she was not a believer. She was caring for her mother-in-law who was dying, actually, staying with them in their home. And I don't remember all the details, but Debbie knew things were not good for her mother-in-law. So she got a hold of a pastor. Whether she knew him in advance, I don't know. Whether she found him in the phone book, I'm not sure how she got in touch with this guy. But she invited a pastor to come and meet with her mother-in-law. It seemed like the good thing to do. Debbie was not a believer. It just seemed like a logical thing to do. And she sat in on the conversation that this pastor had with her mother-in-law. And lo and behold, whether she meant to or not, she got a hold of a live wire. She got a hold of an evangelical pastor who was not going to let the opportunity pass without sharing the gospel with this mother-in-law. And he did. He shared step by step the plan of salvation. Debbie listened in. When he got to Romans 10:13 and quoted the verse, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Debbie saw her need. I don't know about the mother-in-law, but Debbie saw her need. She saw her opportunity, and she responded. This passage before us, tells us in very, very certain terms the kind of people who take up an, uh, an invitation like that, the kind of people who follow Jesus. And the first thing we can cite here is that they are motivated people, motivated to the point that they're willing. They follow Christ. They're not just giving him lip service. It's not just something that's happened in their head. It's happened in their heart as well. And this says something about their insight and their preparedness. People who follow Christ do so because they understand who he is. Do they understand everything about him? Not by a long shot. Those of us who've been in the faith for a long time, we don't understand everything there is to know about him. But they understand enough to cause them to want to follow. They have an understanding because they've been prepared. In some way or another, they've been prepared. This comes by means of the Holy Spirit. Whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, the Holy Spirit has got to be involved or you don't come to Christ. Usually it has to do with the help of others as well. Not in every case. I remember a young couple contacted me when I was pastoring near Milwaukee. And uh, they were an interesting couple. Uh, 
you young parents, the young kids will have to ask your parents what a hippie was. But they were leftovers from the hippie era. This was like mid to late 80s. And the hippie era went out, what, sometime in the 70s? They hadn't left that. <laughs> they were flower children. And they were living in a, in a rental in a, on the lake uh, in Delfield, Wisconsin. And they contacted me because they had come to faith in Christ. And they claimed that they came all by themselves. No one helped them. They were just reading the Word, and the Word made sense. And the more they read, the more it made sense. And both of them, just with the Word of God, sitting alone in their little cottage, came to faith in Christ. They were afraid of the church. This is an interesting phenomenon. They didn't want to be around a lot of people. They called me and asked me if I would baptize them. I tried to convince them that baptism was a public thing. They should do it with believers around them and people who can support them around them. No, just come and baptize us. So I did. Went down. I remember it was a cold day. And I couldn't get out of the lake fast enough. But in that case, they claim to have come on their own. But most of us don't. Most of us have friends or relatives or someone who tells us about Jesus and shares us with us scripture that will help us understand who Jesus is. Now notice how well John the Baptist had been used in preparing some people to come to Christ. Look at verse 35, 36, and 37. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, or behold, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Now the interesting thing about this, these were John the Baptist's disciples, and they followed Jesus. He had prepared them well. He would prepared them so well that when they saw the Savior, it was logical for them to follow. And this says also a lot about John's selflessness. He didn't keep them from following. He prepared them for this day, and he let them go when they were going to follow Jesus. Now, deciding to follow Christ also says something about the earnestness of the follower. Notice theirs. Verse 37 again, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you'll see. They went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Now, we don't exactly know all there is to know about these guys, but they needed time with him. There was an earnestness. You could, you could pick it up in their demeanor and the fact that they wouldn't quit following Jesus. They wanted to be with him. They had a lot of questions. I'm sure they had a ton of questions they wanted to ask him. And it was just appropriate that they would follow him. And this is characteristic of true disciples. If you're a disciple, a genuinely true disciple of Christ, you follow in spite of whatever the difficulties might be, whatever the encumbrances might be. You don't follow out of convenience, and when it's inconvenient, you quit following. You follow because it's right. You've heard me share the story of C.S. Lewis before. C.S. Lewis claimed that he was the most reluctant convert in all of Great Britain. He came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. These are his words. You say, why? Well, he didn't want to do it. But he understood what truth was, He'd come to a point in his life where he saw the truth and he had no choice. He had no alternative but to begin to follow 
Jesus Christ. And if you look at the construction of the Greek in this, uh, in this sentence, especially that little word follow, it suggests that they were doing something once and for all. That's the verb tense. Real followers, not just casual observers. And that's the way it is with people who are truly motivated by truth. They follow. Simple, isn't it? But it's profound. That means to follow him, they're not going to follow some other path they were going. They're not going to follow someone else they may have been following. I remember Roger and Lori from the same church in Delafield, Wisconsin. They were a friend of somebody in the congregation, and they, had, uh, they were interested in spiritual things. Someone came knocking on their door one day. They answered the door, and they handed a little awake magazine to them. And they began, to, they began to meet with this cult. And they were about to be baptized into this cult. And there were some family members who were quite alarmed. I'm not sure if the family members were even believers. But they recognized this cult as a cult. And they were concerned for their loved ones. So somehow we got involved. And one of our guys began to stop by there and visit with them regularly. One of our board members. And one night I remember three of us went. Myself and the, and the, and the guy that had been meeting with him and a friend of his... And we went and sat down with Roger and Lori. They were about to be baptized into this cult. And we just shared the gospel. And they would look at a verse. This is what they showed us in our study. And we would debunk it. by Basically by showing the context in which the verse was found. And it didn't mean at all what the cult was saying it meant. So we spent a few hours there that night. And at the end of the evening, Roger said three words. It changed everything. I've been deceived. I've been deceived. And he prayed that night. He and his wife, Lori, as well, prayed that night to accept Christ. And they began to follow. And they're still following. They grew. They took on leadership positions eventually in the church. They have a ministry. They're followers of Christ. What kind of people follow Christ? Those who are motivated. And not only do they follow they get others to follow. It's a natural thing to do. You can see it twice in this passage. Look at verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah that is the Christ. Look at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now look back at 41 again. Notice it says, Andrew found or went to find his brother. That suggests he went out of his way. He made a point of it. It wasn't one of those things, well, someday I might tell him. No, no. My brother's got to know about this. And also notice the word first. The first thing he did, he set off to find his brother. True followers. Get others to follow. They have a desire to see others follow. They're thrilled when they find out that others are following. They also give acknowledgement of who Christ is. Look what Andrew calls him in verse 41, Messiah. That's a mouthful. Good observation. It suggests that Andrew would understand him to be the Savior or King which had been promised. It would actually be some time before these guys had a fully developed sense of what that meant that Jesus was Messiah, but they knew enough to put this label on Jesus early on. 
And here's something very important. Acknowledging his uniqueness is the privilege of every believer. You thought it was for those who were evangelists, didn't you? No, it's the privilege of every believer. John writes his gospel for the very purpose of showing people that Jesus is the true Messiah. He's quick, therefore, to pick up on Andrew's confession. In fact, here's a telling insight on Andrew. Every time you meet Andrew in the Gospel of John, he's bringing someone to Jesus. Chapter 6, verse 8, story of the feeding of the 5,000. It was Andrew that brought the boy who had the five barley loaves to Jesus. John chapter 12, where these guys are coming and they want to, the Greeks are coming and they want to see Jesus. Andrew's in the middle of making it all happen. When we really begin to understand that's who he actually is, the eternal one, the anointed Savior, the King, it becomes our privilege too. It's a genuine motivation. We may struggle with the how-to, but we want other people to come to know Christ. And if we don't, it generally shows that we just probably don't have a very full comprehension yet of who Jesus really is and what Jesus really wants because he wants people to come to himself as well. So what kind of people follow Christ? Motivated people. But we can still answer more to this question. What kind of people follow Christ? People that are destined for change. Look at what happens to Simon. This is interesting. Verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. Andrew went and found Simon and brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You're Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means, when translated, Peter. So he went from Simon to Cephas, which means Peter. Peter means rock. And it typifies what... Uh, Peter was going to become. It would take a while. You know, John MacArthur, I've mentioned this before, but John MacArthur used to refer to Peter as the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. He was impulsive. He was impetuous. But the day of Pentecost and his own experience of repentance for for how so miserably he failed Jesus at the time of the crucifixion changed a lot in Peter's life. There was great significance in that day attached to people's names. A name could stand for the whole person. It summed up their personality. Name changes in the Bible indicate a couple of things. Number one, the authority, the authority of the one making the change, whether it was man or God. And secondly, when done by God, it speaks of a change of character in the person with the new name. And you can see both are true regarding Simon. From this time on, Simon is living under Jesus' authority. And he becomes a different man. Now we need to know this. Even without a name change, people who follow Christ are changed people. For some of us, it's been a long time since we've accepted Christ. And we've got to pinch ourselves back into reality once in a while. You know, we can put it in autopilot if we're not careful. But we remember the day of what it was like before we knew Christ. And then we reflect on what our life has become since we've known Christ. And we recognize we're changed. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. But are we different? Absolutely. We've come under new authority. 
In fact, we are no longer our own. It's interesting that twice Paul uses a a phrase, you are bought with a price, at least twice, maybe more than that, but I've recorded two times here in my notes. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, he says, you are bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. That's a challenge to be morally upright. And then in 1 Corinthians 7.23, he says, you are bought with a price, do not become slaves of men. What is he saying? When you follow Christ, he becomes boss. He's Lord. I heard this morning as I was getting ready to come to church, I was watching uh, Charles Stanley on TV, and he made quite a deal out of this thing of whether you accept him as Savior or Lord. He says there's no such thing as an either or here. If he is your Savior and you understand what it means to have a Savior, he is your Lord. Let's not section it off. He's the boss. And when he's the boss, change comes in our lives. Those who come to him come to experience a change in character. All become new. What did Paul say? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has gone. The new has come. Everything's new. I had some fun one time. I was with a bunch of Christian people, and I had them start telling me their story of how they'd changed since they came to Christ. I recorded it. Listen to this. Jackie says, as soon as I accepted the fact that God loved me just the way I was, drastic changes in my thinking and attitudes began to take place. Matt said, my life has been dramatically different from what it would have been had I not found the Lord in college. Peggy said, everything started making sense to me when I came to Christ. I felt a satisfying sense of fulfillment in my life as the Lord worked in me. Pam said, my life as a Christian is much different and continually changing. Brenda, since I've become a Christian, I've become more outgoing, and a lot of my attitudes have changed. Since my attitudes have changed, so have a lot of my actions. Follow Christ, and your life will change. If you're satisfied with the way it is, Don't follow Christ. If you see him as who he is and you understand what he's come to do and how he's come to change our lives and put us in touch with God so we can finally in our lives enjoy God, come to Christ. Let him be the boss. Your life will change. That's what kind of people follow Christ. Uh, That's what kind of people there are who follow Christ. They're also responsive people. They respond to Jesus. And Jesus invites this response. Look at verse 37 again. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed him. The initiative for following seems to be with John the Baptist's disciples. But in John, in uh, verse 43, Jesus takes the initiative. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, hey, follow me. Jesus was calling together his team. That's part of what this passage is about. Jesus takes the initiative. This, to me, draws a heavy line under the fact that Jesus is interested in people. 
You don't have to twist God's, God's arm in order to be able to come to him. He wants you. He loves you. Loves all of us. Words are cheap, and we throw the word love around a lot. And many times it doesn't mean much. Oh, I love you, I love you. But he really loves us. He loved us so much to send his son to die for us. And he wants us to respond to him. And the thing of it is, he loves all of us. He doesn't just love those with a high IQ. He doesn't just love those with a certain skill set. He loves all of us. And people respond to Jesus because they need him, not because they're good enough. Now, this is not immediately evident when you look at the text, but you do a little research here, as Leon Morris did, and you see how ordinary some of these guys are. Philip, for instance. Morris says that he had limited ability. Now, here's how he arrived at that. You can challenge him if you like. But he points out that when, um, when the situation of the feeding of the 5,000 took place, Philip didn't have much to contribute other than the fact that we don't have enough money for food. That's about as far as he went. But Jesus desired him. He went out of his way to uh, enlist him. That's encouraging. I mean, especially is it encouraging if you're one of those people who've been spending your life devaluing yourself, minimizing your importance. The world is full of people like that. Our society, in fact, seems to be churning them out by the carload. Jesus has a special interest in all people, not just some. Now, some disciples were men of exceptional ability, but not all. The interesting thing is that Philip responds to him, responds very affirmatively to him. That's also encouraging. It shows the Holy Spirit's power to influence all people. And they respond because Jesus is interested in people of all kinds of temperaments. You can see this clearly when you focus on people who are highlighted in the text. Peter, again. Here's that impulsive, impetuous, at times reckless, at times absolutely brash individual. And Jesus wants him. And you got Philip, who's evidently a little slow on the draw, according to Leon Morris. Now, he doesn't mean that he's uh, intellectually inferior, but he was just a, a processor. He, he was a sort of a plotter, sort of a deliberate, methodical guy. He's called too. And then there's Nathaniel. Nathaniel provides another representative sampling of the kind of humanity Jesus called. Philip finds him and tells him what he's found. Let's read verse 45 again. We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now the Greek construction of this statement may indicate that Philip and Nathaniel had previously discussed the fulfillment of the scriptures in question. We're not sure. But Philip mentions no specific passage, although one scholar tells us that uh, the rabbis interpreted no less than 456 Old Testament passages to deal with Messiah. So they could have a lot to talk about. But the important thing for us to see, Nathaniel responds. Look at verse 46. Look how he responds. This is kind of humorous, I think. 
First he's told, he's told that we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets wrote, this Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can any good come from there? Now, he didn't mean that Nazareth was an infamous place. He meant it was uh, hmm, kind of a hick town. It just didn't have, it was, a, it was an insignificant place in his mind. But notice how Jesus responds with insight right into Nathaniel's personality. Look at verse 37. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said to him, Here is a true Israelite. You think Jesus might be offended by somebody referring to his town as a hick town, right? But Jesus says, Here's a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. This is an interesting statement. Um, in whom there's no guile. That's how a lot of translations translate this thing. In whom there's no guile. What is guile? Cunning. Um, deceit or deceitfulness. It, in fact, the word translated guile or um, in whom there's no falsehood, was also used by early Greek writers for the word bait. What are you doing if you're fishing and you're using a piece of bait? You're trying to fool the fish, right? You're trying to deceive the fish into biting into your hook. Jacob is a good example. Jacob was a deceiver. He was a supplanter. He was a deceitful sort of guy. Came to his father Isaac his father blesses Jacob over Esau. And you can read about it in Genesis 27. Your brother has, this, has come deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. There's one New Testament scholar that takes this verse in 47. Here's a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. And he translates it this way. Here's a true Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. So that's the idea. And Jesus said of Nathaniel... He doesn't have any of that stuff. There's no deceit in this guy at all. And it suggests that he saw Nathaniel as a real straight shooter. He was up front. He was plain spoken. There was no deceit or double talk from this guy whatsoever. And Nathaniel responds affirmatively to Jesus. You'd somehow expect him to, wouldn't you? At least for two reasons. People like Nathaniel just appreciate truth. And secondly... Jesus does something that really gets his attention. Look at verse 48. How do you know me? I mean, Jesus just said, here's a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. He'd never met the guy before. So Nathaniel said, Whoa, wait a minute, how do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Whoa. Now let me ask you a question. If you had that sort of encounter with Jesus, you think it would get your attention? It certainly would, and it certainly did. To the point that Nathaniel makes a discovery and a statement, which leads to something else true of those who respond to Jesus, at least those who respond appropriately. They respond because of who Jesus is. And notice what Nathaniel, who, Nathaniel, who Nathaniel says he is. He is the Son of God, the King of Israel. Nathaniel, at this point in time in his own experience, is using the highest, most significant words he can think of to attribute to Jesus. 
And he describes him in terms which indicate the closest possible relationship that Jesus can have with God. He even acknowledges that Jesus is to be his own king. Listen, true followers don't mind yielding that kind of submission to Jesus. Jesus responds himself to Nathanael's response, and in doing so, reveals to him and to us something else he is, something else that makes him worthy of response, and that is this. Jesus is the assurance of better things to come. Look at it, verse 50 and 51. Jesus said, you believe me because I told you, uh, because I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. Then he added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now let's unpack this. This is, this is pretty profound stuff. In verse 51, what Jesus says is likely a reference to Jacob's vision. Some of you know that. Uh, the uh, Jacob's ladder, Jacob's staircase between heaven and earth in the Old Testament. You can look it up, Genesis chapter 28, verse 10 and following. The idea conveyed is that of communication between heaven and earth. In John, Jesus implies that he is the ladder. The picture is that Jesus himself is the link between heaven and earth. Look at John chapter 3, verse 13, and here's what you'll read. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So in other words, he is the link by which the realities of heaven are brought down to earth. Pretty interesting. It's all a very figurative way of saying that Jesus is going to reveal heavenly things to men and women. Jesus not only fulfills prophecy, he reveals God. He establishes communication between earth and heaven. Jesus opens heaven and makes the love and power of God available to man in a brand new way. This is the dynamic of this whole statement. Who could help but respond to Jesus Christ and become one of his followers when they come into this kind of knowledge about him? I mean, there's an obvious application here. Begs to be made, I'd be remiss if I didn't. If you're here today, my friend, and you've never responded to Jesus Christ by yielding your life to him, why not? Let me ask you some questions. Are you motivated to follow him? Have you learned enough, perhaps in the past or maybe just this morning, to realize that he's unique? Would you like to recognize and acknowledge his uniqueness by yielding your life to him? Do you desire to be changed by him? Would you like to come under his authority and allow him to change your character? That's what this message is about. These guys were going to—they were in for big time change when they came to follow Jesus. Are you ready in your own life? To respond to him. If you are, here's what I'd like to ask you to do. We'll do it a little differently this morning than what we have in the past. In each of your worship holders, you have a connection card. If you've never yet asked Jesus to become Lord and Savior of your life, but you'd like to based upon what we've been talking about this morning or because of what we've been talking about this morning, I'd like for you to circle your name 
on your connection card. And when the offering is received, place it in the offering. You say, why should I do that? Well, I mentioned before that most of us come to Christ because someone helps us. We all have questions. We all have things we'd like to get clarified before we make a monumental decision like this. We can perhaps help answer those questions. And if you'll circle, circle your name and make sure we have a contact in, some contact information on you, your email address, your phone number, we'll get in touch with you. And we'll sit down and talk about this. Because this is worth every ounce of time you can give it. I want you, many people want you, to become a follower of Christ. And our question today is this. Have you heard enough? Andrew followed. Peter followed. Philip followed. Nathaniel followed. Will you follow? Will you follow? There's something else here by way of application that we need to talk about. It has to do with those of us who are already following. It has to do with how close we're following. My experience, and Scripture as well, teaches us that the closer we follow, the more will happen in and through our lives. We'll we'll have a growing desire and make efforts to get others to follow as well. There'll be a constant change of our character. The Bible calls that becoming conformed to the image of Christ. It takes a lifetime, but that's what God's about in our lives once we receive him. There comes to be a growing desire to be responsive to him. My question to you today, those of you who have been following, is, is this true of your life? Or if you just felt like you just sort of punched your ticket one time in the past and you've been on autopilot ever since. If it's not that way in your life, but you'd like for it to be that way in your life, what can you possibly do? How can you possibly change? I mean, it's so easy to lag behind and to follow from afar, to become nominal in this thing of being a Christian. Drifting, becoming complacent is probably the biggest challenge you and I will face in our Christian life. Don't let it happen to you. Don't let it happen. How can we avoid drifting? Dan and I were talking about this in the office this week. And thanks to Dan, I have a short list I didn't have before. You've jogged my memory. How about becoming involved in a, in a unit of a group of people that really fellowships with each other, really looks out for one another, really bears one another's burdens, really prays for one another. We call those community groups here. Would that help you grow? They're available, and we want you to know about them. There are other groups that don't go by the name community group, but there are groups of people meeting in this church all around the, the community all every, every week. I meet with a couple of guys on Tuesday morning, and we're talking shop. How can we get more out of this Christian life? How can we put more into this Christian life? How can we become everything God wants us to be? I would urge you to get involved, if you're not now, in some kind of a small group, community group or otherwise, that will help you grow. Here's something else that will help you grow. Sign up for service, my friend. People who are in Christian service, no matter what it is, tend to grow better and more help, more uh, effectively than people who are not involved in service. Sign up for service. 
Good night. God has given you abilities. You can use them for his kingdom and for his glory. Something else you can do is to share your faith. So, oh boy, I wouldn't do that on a bet. Why not? If you have faith, it's for giving away. Give it to somebody else. Watch them grow. Watch them come into a dynamic relationship with God. What a thrill this would be. So I want to encourage you, challenge you to give your faith away. And here's something you haven't thought about. I hadn't thought about it, to be honest with you. Dan brought it up. He's absolutely right. How many people are there in this congregation that have never followed the Lord in the obedience of water baptism? What's that have to do with anything? You know, you never find faith in the New Testament without baptism. And you never find baptism without faith. Now, for me, that rules out infant baptism because the person being baptized has no consciousness of what's going on. This is a decision the person being baptized has got to make. Baptism is an important thing. And it amazes me. I've been in many churches now over 40 years. It amazes me how many evangelical Christians there are that have never followed the Lord in the obedience of water baptism. Now, there's no, nothing salvific in baptism. Baptism does not save. You take a dry center, put him in a tub, dunk him, now you've got a wet center. <laughs> what saves is Jesus, not baptism. But baptism is a statement to the world and to myself and to God, I'm yours. It's like driving a stake in the ground. It's a reckoning point. And there are many people, and, and Jesus said that we should be baptized. We should be doing the baptizing, going to all the world and make disciples, baptizing them. I would encourage you, if you've not been baptized, to let us know it. In fact, we talked about the possibility of having baptismal services right here through a portable baptistry. We did this in the city one time. We were in, a, we were in an old potato chip factory building. And we were going to have a baptismal service. How do you do it? There's no baptistry. We put a hot tub on a, on, the, on a flatbed trailer and had a baptismal service in our parking lot. Boy, that drew a crowd. But sign up for service. Get involved in the community group. Share your faith. Follow the Lord in the obedience of water baptism. There are many other things as well that we could list. But this is just for starters, my friend. What kind of people... Follow Jesus. Motivated people. People destined for change. Responsive people. Are you among them? If you are, are you maxing out in your Christian life? If you aren't, guess who needs to change? That's not an indictment. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for every person in this room for whom at one day, at a certain time, they had this appointment with you and they decided to follow Jesus. You called them. You chose them. I'm one. I didn't deserve it. I don't deserve it today. But you've called me. And all of uh, all who can uh, add an amen to that for themselves, we, we want to thank you today. 
that in spite of ourselves, you called us. You chose us. You allowed us to become your children. For any who are here today who don't know you, but would like to know the kind of Christ we're talking about, we pray for them. That nothing would keep them from making this decision. We pray they would boldly and freely circle their name on that connection card so we can talk further and answer questions and come to grips with this issue. This is an important issue. This is the difference between heaven or hell, eternity with you or eternity without you, and the quality of life we will live here and now on this earth. All that's wrapped up in this decision. So, Lord, to that end, we commit ourselves today. We pray that you would bless and minister in each individual life here. We thank you for these young people that stood tall this morning and gave their testimonies and shared a memory verse. And We pray for them that you'd keep them strong, keep them from the evil one. Help them to grow in depth and the dynamic of a meaningful relationship with you that it is biblically based, not culturally based. God, we ask your blessing upon our lives, not only because we want it, but, Lord, because we need it. Help us to be faithful in following Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.